to the latest edition of the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague Stuart Mandel. Uh, Stu, in a little bit, we're going to be joined by an old colleague of ours, Mike McCann, who's really one of the foremost authorities uh, uh, on legal analysis, especially as it relates to the sports world. And there's a lot of stuff for us to get to with him in the wake of last week's 9-0 court ruling against the NCA, But before we do that, uh, you went on the road to... We talked a bunch about the playoff in the last couple of weeks and its expansion, so they had some meetings in Dallas. Uh, what do you want to share with us about your trip? I spent uh, basically 23 hours in Dallas, mostly at the DFW Hyatt, uh, where the meetings were taking place. It was just good to be, this is my first business trip since before the pandemic. It was great to be back out and see people in person. Um, you know, I had, so all the commissioners were there and then um, a president from each of the conferences. Kevin Warren's been the Big Ten commissioner for a year and a half. And this is the first time I've met him. Uh, that that would not be the case in, in normal times, obviously. Uh, first time seeing Jim Phillips since he became, you know, the ACC commissioner. Um and it was just, you know, there weren't there weren't many reporters there. So we got to spend. Oh, I also met the new Pac-12 commissioner, George Kleokoff. So this is this was valuable from that perspective. Not a lot went on news wise. Um, kind of anticlimactic, to be honest. Like when I scheduled this trip, we thought this was going to be the meeting where they announced the 12 team playoff, uh, you know, or that that was the recommendation. And they actually announced that a couple weeks ago. And it's we were talking about it. it's kind of backward, right? Like they announced the details and now they're coming out and saying, okay, but now we need some time to figure out if we can actually make this work, the contracts and, and whatnot. And it's like, shouldn't they have done that in the opposite order? What? So I have a question on that. So what do you think their strategy behind that? Because obviously they made a, a pointed effort to release the information ahead of these meetings. Why did they choose to do it in that manner as opposed to what you just described? Because their PR consultant, Ari Fleischer, former White House press secretary. They're still using him? Been, yeah, he's been on their payroll for like a decade because that's what he told he told them to do it that way. That's the basic answer. I, I It was good for us for content, but like I, I don't I don't get it. You know, this group worked in secret for two years and to their credit, kept it a secret. We none of us who cover the sport knew there was a four person uh, that specific four person group modeling out expansion scenarios. I my from what I've heard, they figured that once they presented it to the larger group, it would leak one way or the other. So go out, get out ahead of it and announce it and, uh, you know, so that it comes straight from them. So that makes sense to some degree, but it's just, it's weird to me. You've, you've put that out there into the world. You've gotten people excited about it. And now you're turning around and saying, you know, pump the brakes. There's a lot to sort out here. We don't actually know if we can do this before 2026. And, you know, and Andy Staples has been saying this a lot on Twitter. 
Like now that it's out there, you cannot make people wait five years. Like are you, you, you've basically told the world, we don't think the four-team playoff is, is a good thing anymore. You know, two, the same teams over and over again, losing fan interest in certain parts of the country. So now you're going to turn around and say, but you guys need to live with this for another five years because, because of these contracts we locked ourselves into. Um, I still feel that at the end of the day, they'll figure out a way to start it earlier in 2023 for that reason. But there are definitely commissioners, I can tell you this, there are definitely commissioners who feel it's their uh, opinion that they should wait because if you if you do it early, <clears throat> then it's going to be ESPN for sure. And ESPN basically gets to call their price. If you wait till the end of the contract, you can take it to the open market. Maybe Fox wants a piece of it. Maybe, I don't know, CBS, somebody. And it drives up the price. So from a purely business perspective, it would make sense for them to wait. But I think the, the optics of it are now such that they're almost, uh, you know, they're almost boxed into a corner. Because I, I think it would, not only would it would the fans lose patience if they if if you put it off another five years, like your system loses credibility. You've already told everybody you don't believe in the system anymore. So how are we supposed to fully buy into it for another five years? The only entity that I know of in college athletics who seems to have a worse PR than the CFP is the NCAA. They should have. They, they, has worse PR they should that. have run Ari Fleischer the hell out of there and said, you know what, we should hire Andy Staples because he's a lot smarter than this guy when it comes to to. Uh, to college sports and media matters, just like I don't know, it's just like a feels like a lot of head scratching stuff when you get into the weeds with them on things. Just the you know, so this was the first time the president like it's were like there. their strategy and, uh, is almost yeah, let's just trot Hancock out because people maybe won't feel maybe the people who cover the sport will you know feel bad about ripping we'll them. Yeah, him. it's just like. That, that is their strategy. So every time we go to these meetings, um, like there was one just last week in Chicago. I wasn't at it. Nicole Auerbach was at it for us. And like the com- they made the commissioner. I, this, is, this is a true story. And this was Ari's doing. They made the commissioners like they like snuck them out a back way to avoid having them talk to the press because they wanted only Bill Hancock. Like he's the voice of the CFP. He should deliver the message. And it's like, Guys, you're the ones who, ad- like, if you were trying to keep it a secret, okay, but, like, you advertised this to the world last week. You 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 had a teleconference with Sankey and Jack Swarbrick and Bob Bowles being Craig Thompson. So to turn around a week later and say, like, oh, we got to keep a gag order on this thing, it's just so backward, and it's always been that way. The one thing I'll say is this is much more organized. This has been much more organized than when they went from the BCS to four teams. Those... That dis- those negotiations, if you will, were basically c- conducted entirely in the media, and it was very adversarial. Do you, Jim, Delaney do you remember this moment? We were yeah. in, we were there were meetings in California at some hotel, and I remember being with like maybe four other reporters, and we were around Joe Castiglione, and the look on his face when yes. it was like, "Wait, that's the name?" And I don't remember if Joe said that's the fucking name, but it was like it was so <laughs> so like seriously, like you're kidding, and that was I. Yeah, I, I could, the the stories of the, B, like the BCS, the CFP is, much, you know, the CFP is actually a much more uh, well-run organization than the BCS was. The BCS wasn't even really a formal organization. It was just kind of like a name. Um, but so it's funny you mentioned, so that was in Pasadena. 
they had already they had already um, agreed to do the four team playoff, and now it was like they're figuring out the name and the logo. And this is and this was this was like the man who is the most respected figure amongst his peers in college athletics, Joe Castiglione. <laughs> and I was just like the look on his face was like he didn't need thought bubbles. It was just like like are you shitting me kind of look. Because they made such a big deal out of like we're going to announce the name. Everybody fly to Pasadena. We're going to announce the name, and then the name was college football playoff. And I got to give credit to Mike Finger, columnist for the San Antonio Express News. You know, look, you got to have a pretty special tweet for people to remember it a day later, much less eight years later, whatever this is. And everybody was mocking it on Twitter. And he, and he said, if Bill Hancock had a dog, his name would be Dog. <laughs> that was their response to it. Also, they had a fan contest to design the logo, like... Uh, fans submitted their logo and then people could vote on it so they so they start the vote and one of the four is way ahead of the other ones and it's the one that we all think is the ugliest and it turned out like somebody you know somebody had rigged it somebody had figured out like a program to rig the vote and they handed us they came rushing into the room and they handed us a it wasn't there was no there was no like uh, logo there was no stationary it was just a piece of paper that said we have discovered a cheater. <laughs> this is the PR that we're, we're talking about here over, over all the years. So, um, yeah. So, anyway, the meeting ended with Mark Keenum, the president of Mississippi State, the chairman of the board, telling us where things stand. He talks very presidential. And he said, at some point, he said something like, yeah, you know, there's a lot, a lot of, it's very complicated. Our, we found out this morning from our lawyers about such and such. And I just remember thinking, Shouldn't the lawyers have told you that before you put all this out there? <laughs> why, are we, why are we have getting up to speed with the lawyers now? Um, anyway, the good news is, like like I said, the, the four-team thing was The good news absurd. is you went to a Papacitos in the airport. <laughs> oh, I, and then I have to give you credit on that. You're the one who knows exactly where the Papacitos at DFW is. So, yes, I, I, oh, that, that restaurant is so good. You're sitting, I'm sitting at a table and there's like uh, uh, curtains on either side of me to protect me from the people at the other table. So it's like I was in a pod eating my fajitas, but Popsitos is great. Um, no, the, the, the difference between 2012 and this, 2012 was very adversarial. Jim Delaney was going to die on the hill of the Rose Bowl. Mike Sly, who was the SEC commissioner, you know, wanted very much for it to be top four. There was just a lot of fighting. They're all in agreement on 12 teams. They really are. You know, some of the details could could change in terms of the calendar. And although I do think that the bowl game quarterfinals is here to stay. Um, but they agree on the on the overriding. Principle. Hey, one question for you. And you uh, you mentioned being in Dallas and our colleague Chris Vanini, who covers. And I don't, I don't know if I'm saying it wrong now. Group of five for us. Um, he did an interesting story out of there that I saw um, this morning as we're taping Thursday about just the change in perception of group of five versus power five. And obviously, you know, when you talk to Michael Resco, who's the commissioner of one of those uh, conferences of the AAC, um, you get it, you know, they're going to put their own spin on it. How much do you, do you, I mean, you cover college football too. Like how much do you agree with the contention in that story? I mean, some of it is like, 
like one of the things I think Chris had had referenced in his in his piece was you just had UCF would have been in 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 the playoff multiple times if it was structured as twelve at the top twelve, and yet UCF just lost its head coach to a Power Five program uh, in Tennessee that hasn't been anywhere near the playoff. Now my my counter to that would be that's a fairly unique circumstance, I think, because you know you have a head coach in Josh Heupel whose program has been backsliding under him, and he probably he might be a six and six or a seven and five away from you know a lot more pressure on his job. That said, do you buy the contention of how much this changes for the non-power five blue blood programs? The, the, the phrase group of five originated entirely because of that one bowl spot. It was the way to say like, okay, these five conferences are competing for this one, you know, automatic New Year's Six bowl berth. And Chris is right. In this system, you're, there's really no need to, to differentiate it formally like that anymore because everybody's eligible for the same thing, for the six highest ranked conference the, champions. The only way to differentiate it, really, the only reason to do it is just out of old habits, right? Old habits and also they're still going to be... The inherent biases in the, on the committee. Yeah. College basketball, right? We, we call... Everybody's eligible for that tournament. Everybody gets on a bid. We still refer to certain conferences as mid-majors. I mean, at the end of the day, like, you're still going to be... This isn't going to change the huge discrepancy in revenue, you know, that the Big Ten schools make... $50 million a year and the AA schools make like $7 million a year from TV. That's 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 not going to change necessarily overnight. So there is still a, you know, the recruiting is still going to mostly be what it is. I think the difference, the main difference to me is that if, you, if UCF or Cincinnati or, or Boise State or whoever were to start making the playoff regularly, they could theoretically become the Gonzaga of football because it's no longer... Um, you know, right now there's a ceiling on all of them. UCF couldn't crack number eight. But if they get into the playoff, and certainly if they win playoff games, you know, now maybe that thing I just said about money might not apply necessarily. Uh, a UCF or somebody might become very valuable, uh, a very valuable brand if they're if they're considered to be, like just Gonzaga I think they have to, to win playoff games. To me, that's a distinction of being the Gonzaga versus being like the UVM, right? You, you know... Which is what Gonzaga has done. They haven't won the championship, but they've they've made deep NCAA tournament runs. They've proven to they're, they're now getting you know Jalen Suggs right. Like th- we're not talking about something that would happen overnight. But if if you let's say UCF started making the playoff every they have year, to they have to win and, games in it though, and they win games. Like I'm not even saying get to the national championship game. Just like they they get in and and they beat a Georgia or they beat a Auburn or whoever in the first round and. Um, you know, are consistently showing they can do that. You could, de- first of all, I would think that, that they would eventually get called up to one of the big leagues, if you will. Um, you could really transform your program. I would ask you the question about coaches. Um, does this change? If you're Luke Fickle, do you have less reason to leave Cincinnati if you now have the same opportunity to win the national championship as everybody I else? would agree on that. Now, Luke Fickle, I think, is a, is a fairly unique situation in that I think he has been especially choosy. I mean, he could have been a, a he could have been definitely in the mix at Michigan State and opted to stay at Cincinnati. Uh, now, if Ohio State were to open or if Notre Dame were to open, maybe different story. But I think 
I think these are like really individual cases that you have to evaluate. Just like to me, the Josh Heupel example um, is different because again, it didn't feel like he's that far from being on the hot seat of things. To, if they had a, if they were tr- had another downturn year at UCF in 2021, so I think the question then becomes, um, you know, a few months ago we had Jamie Chadwell from Coastal Carolina on the podcast, and I think you and I both were in agreement that. Uh, if South Carolina were to have hired Jamie Chadwell, we both would have been like, oh, that was a great hire by them. Um, and that's a program where it's not to say that they don't have a lot of resources, they have a great home field environment, everything. Um, but does that become the no-brainer move if you're Jamie Chadwell, if you're at a group of five that is not the group of that is not like one of the top of the food chain jobs in the group of five you know with all sorts of connections to it Uh, you know i think then it's a little you know i still think because of the money i mean we're seeing a story this week out of louisiana where billy napier who's done a terrific job at louisiana is is reportedly going to be paid two million dollars a year which is way more than you know it's like it's mind-blowing for people who remember what you know ull was a few years ago with the raging cajuns and he's turned down opportunities but at the same at the same time he has not turned down opportunities where they're only going to pay him two million dollars a year you know whether you know it's one of those sec jobs nobody in the sec now is only making two million dollars a year so I, I would use that as the prism maybe more than Luke Fickle. Also, let's not forget, it's not just group of five coaches that, that move up in the world. I mean, power five, we see movement within the power five. We see uh, Mel Tucker go from Colorado to Michigan State. We see, um, you know, what's another, what's another good example? Um, we saw James Franklin go from an SEC school, granted the historically worst SEC school, to a Big Ten school yeah, in state. Yeah, Paul so goes from Pitt Coaches to, are always going to try to... goes from Pitt yeah, to Wisconsin. there's a good one. Yeah, we've seen... So even within the Power Five, there's a perception of, you know, certain jobs are better than others. So I don't think that that goes away uh, just because of the change in the playoff structure. But maybe it doesn't... It's not necessary. Like, I guess, I guess to your point, right, like... You know, Jamie Chadwell can afford to be choosier. Billy Napier can afford to be choosier about what that next job is because because um, they have a chance to actually build something sustainable possibly at the Group of Five level. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to that. All right, so there's some fairly big news on Monday in the college sports world. The NCAA took a, a huge uh, court defeat at the Supreme Court, the Alston case, which was never really as got at the attention that O'Bannon did uh, because it was very, very narrow. It was about edu- you know, whether schools should be able to give education-related benefits above a scholarship. Um, but it goes to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court rules 9 nothing, and, and Justice Kavanaugh writes an opinion, not the majority opinion, but an opinion that basically says flat out, he says that in any other, he said the NCAA's uh, model, business model, would be flatly illegal in almost any other industry in America. Uh, he, he said the NCAA is not above the law. It was just very scathing. But not being a Supreme Court expert myself, I'm not clear on 
what that means for the future. But I know somebody who does know, and that's our special guest coming on now, Michael McCann. Okay, Stu, back to the podcast in a second, but now a word from our sponsor, LinkedIn Talent Solutions. When you are hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just a jobs board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within the first 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. LinkedIn knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash audible. That's linkedin.com slash audible to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. All right, we're pleased to be joined now on the Audible by a former coworker, actually a former coworker of both of ours at Sports Illustrated, Michael McCann. Mike is a law professor at the University of New Hampshire and now a writer for Sportico, a great new site uh, covering the business of sports. And uh, Mike, you're the perfect person to come on because once upon a time, you and I sat in Judge Wilkins' uh, courtroom in Oakland for the Ed O'Bannon trial in 2014, and now here we are. Uh, amateurism has gone all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, I just, what are some of your initial thoughts? I, I mean, I think n- none of us are surprised that they that the Supreme Court ruled against the NCA in the Alston case. I guess I wasn't expecting nine nothing for one thing, and then what's obviously got everybody, um, you know, has blown everybody away is Justice Kavanaugh's very harsh. Uh, critique of the NCAA's amateurism model in his consenting opinion, uh, his concurring opinion, I, which just the fact that I botched the word tells you how little I know about the Supreme Court. So if you could <laughs> in, indulge us with a little primer on what, what the most important takeaways were. Yeah, I agree with you, Stu, and it is great to, to see you. I mean, it, I can't believe it. The O'Bannon hearing was, uh, what, seven years yeah. ago? Yeah. Right. Uh, it's amazing how things have changed since then. My takeaways are, one, I was surprised it was unanimous. I didn't expect that. I thought Justice Breyer was going to rule for the NCAA, at least based on his remarks during the oral argument, where he was clearly reticent at the idea of using antitrust law to rein in the NCAA and amateurism more broadly. And I also thought Justice Sotomayor might go with him on that. But that's not what happened. And I think that's a credit to Jeffrey Kessler, the lead attorney for Alston, in that he couched the case in a way that was limited. And this will go to Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion in a minute. 
where Jeffrey Kessler didn't ask for everything. And he could have had the litigation turned differently, but he only asked, as we know, for education-related benefits, a sort of narrow slice of a larger critique of amateurism rules. And because of that, all of the justices felt that it doesn't make sense that the NCAA can come up with rules that restrict academic-related expenses because the student-athlete, right? That Why are we restricting what they can get for academics? It doesn't go to competitiveness. It doesn't go to fan interest. So all of the arguments the NCAA has used were dismissed by not only Justice Gorsuch in his opinion, but clearly that the court felt that there was enough there that there, it wasn't undermining the larger concept of amateurism. So I think one big takeaway is credit to the lawyers that they couched the case in a way that could get a 9-0 vote. In terms of Justice Kavanaugh's con concurring opinion, I, I think it's worth noting that he was the only one. Uh, that's not to say it's not important by any means, but it should be taken in that light. We don't know if there's a majority of justices who would go where he went, which was a takedown of amateurism, ar arguing that it's blatant price fixing and would be illegal in any other context. He was almost inviting another case uh, that would that would attack the broader principles. And maybe we'll see that. Clearly, the Supreme Court said, look, NCAA, you're not special. You don't get special treatment under antitrust law. You've been saying it for three decades since the 1984 Board of Regents case, but that case wasn't about student athletes. It was about TV rights. You've been using it repeatedly. Stop using it because it doesn't work. So now the court is saying regular antitrust law applies. And Justice Kavanaugh is clearly saying, bring it on. I'm going to take down the rest of it if you give me the right case. So I wanted to ask you about that, Mike, because one of the things that a lot of us kind of either, uh, and certainly we do not have the expertise that you have, but saw that and took that as basically an invitation to other attorneys to to come after the NCAA is that how you read it do you do you expect now we will see a flurry of lawsuits because of of what they look at as a green light from from Brett Kavanaugh or is that I mean just not knowing the dynamics of how the court works and how attorneys you know kind of take their cues from uh, you know an, an opinion like that what do you read the tea leaves on this to expect yeah I, I think I think we're going to see litigation, even if there was no concurring opinion, I think based on just the majority opinion saying that normal antitrust scrutiny applies is an invitation for more litigation. But Justice Kavanaugh, I think Justice Kavanaugh really wanted to be the voice on this. And that was clear during the oral argument where he, he adopted a tone that was different than the other justices. He aggressively went after the NCAA in a way that really didn't leave any room for Seth Waxman, who argued for the NCAA to, to sort of levy arguments against that. And he, he just seems to just not buy college sports as a model in terms of athletes not being paid. And I think he wanted to be the voice on that. I think he wanted to offer a blunt view that going to your question, Bruce, will allow lawyers to cite it. Now it's not binding precedent, but it's still really influential. I mean, it's a Supreme Court concurring opinion. I mean, it, that's, it, it's not the law, but 
we, we have seen concurring and dissenting opinions often cited when they're issued by the Supreme Court, because it's showing that at least some corner of the court feels a certain way. And you can be sure there are judges across the country that agree with Justice Kavanaugh that will be receptive to what he said. And what he said was essentially price fixing. This is, this is a legal price fixing. The athletes should be able to get what the market dictates. That, as we know, wasn't what Alston became the case, but it's what I think Justice Kavanaugh wanted it to be. And he is telling sports. I also think it went beyond lawyers. I think it went to sports fans. But he wrote it in a way that was conversational, right? It wasn't written in an abs. Sometimes you read Supreme Court opinions and they're so esoteric that it's really for the, the inside lawyers club type of thing and for judges. This was for fans. I think this was for this was him, Justice Kavanaugh, a super smart guy, super highly acclaimed, you know, tr great training, all that. But he also is clearly a sports fan. And I think that came through in what he wrote. Yeah, if I didn't know better, I would think Andy Staples ghost wrote that opinion for him because it's basically <laughs> everything Andy has been writing in columns for, for a decade. Um, you hit on a key thing there early, Mike, um, you know, having sat through the, you know, I did not cover the Alston case, but I covered O'Bannon and so much of the NCAA's defense of amateurism is this assumption. And I think it's a, it may be true, but I don't know if they ever really proved it, that fans watch college sports because the athletes are amateurs, that if you were to pay them, the whole, you know, the whole thing would break down. They wouldn't watch it anymore. I can remember them citing polls that they had done that seemed very like, I mean, you know how it was public polling. If you phrase a question a certain way, you'll get the answer you're looking for. It kind of felt like that. I know that um, Justice Gorsuch debunked it a little bit in his uh, opinion. But, um, and, but the thing is, it was working. Uh, you know, you look at O'Bannon, the original decision from Judge Wilkin at the lowest court level would have allowed athletes to, um, I think what the number was $20,000, to, to put $20,000 worth of NIL uh, uh, revenue into a trust fund that they would get when they graduated. And when it got appealed, the, the, the judges in that threw it out, said, oh, that's too untethered from education. They weren't ready to go there yet, in other words. And so that, if, correct me if I'm wrong, that's why this case was so narrow. Um, but here you have the highest court in the land saying, that's not too narrow. If anything, the whole thing is a price fixing scheme. Um, so, you know, it, it, when the next, I mean, the fact that the, the NCAA can no longer um, cite that one line in a case from 35 years ago that wasn't even about pay for play. Like they can't do that anymore, right? Like that, that it, when the next case comes, what is their defense? Yeah, it, it, you're right. They can't do it anymore. And their next defense, it, well, going to the public opinion polling, like you said, it's how you construct a question. And O'Bannon's lawyers really deconstructed what they argued because the polling questions in the O'Bannon case were to asking fans, well, if college athletes are paid, Will that bother you? Basically, I mean, I'm, I'm summarizing it. And O'Bannon's lawyer said, well, that's not the right question. The question is if they're able to sign endorsement deals uh, with a third party or be paid through group licensing, not paid by their school. 
right? That's that's a key distinction that that all of the judges are that have and justices that have looked at this have, have clearly honed in on. Uh, in terms of what what will the NCAA do going forward? Yeah, that, that I don't think public polling data, unless it's really designed in a way that addresses what the case is about, is going to be persuasive and tethered to education. Even that phrase is pretty inviting. Uh, a lot of things can be tethered to education. And, and I think that what we'll see going forward is some litigation over what that expression means. No court has defined it in a way that, that can cabin off things that might be only loosely related to education. Give, I mean, this sounds crazy maybe, but it's not giving players a video game system and a TV because it relates to the study of esports, uh, having them go on vacation near historical sites. Maybe that- Giving them a car to, to get to class. Giving them a car, not a Lamborghini, <laughs> Justice Gorsuch said, not a Lamborghini, but what about a Honda or something? You know, so there's a lot there that has to be unpacked. And I think the NCAA is in a position now where it has to decide, you know, does it want to litigate for the next five to 10 years? We know, we know these changes are going to come overnight. Uh, this this is this takes years to unravel, and maybe the NCAA just wants to play the long game. But uh, we will see other cases related to these issues, and the NCAA is not going to have the same set of defenses. Stu, not to be a cynic, but I think the the better framing of the question should have been, or the polling question should have been: Would you be uncomfortable if your rival school? is paying players because I, I would imagine that that's a distinction where it's like, Oh, if we're winning, we're okay with it. But um, like one of the summations you'd see, I saw a lot last week when this came down or, or, or I don't know, it was, this is the death of amateurism because I think people took a nine, nine Oh ruling. They saw a better, a very tasty Twitter kind of friendly, uh, comments that they could screen grab of the Kavanaugh uh, opinion and saw it equated as the death of amateurism. Is that overstating it or what is, how would you, you know, kind of read that? Is it, is that an overstatement right now or are we getting there? Oh, I think it's a big overstatement and I saw it as well. And I realize if you want to get things retweeted, you know, be provocative. Uh, I'm not good at that. So I'll just, I'll admit it. Uh, it. No, it's an overstatement because the case was about education related expenses. And it's not about what, what we think of when we think of college sports and paying players, which is that they're compensated because they're good athletes. That remains unallowed under this decision. Justice, Gors uh, Justice Kavanaugh would, would argue otherwise, but he's one person on the court. I actually would, you know, honestly, I think if Jeffrey Kessler had asked for a broader review, there's a chance he loses that case. Remember, Chief Justice Roberts talked about the game of Jenga, that if you keep attacking it, the whole thing collapses. He may have been a no vote. Justice Breyer, I think, was a no vote. Justice Sotomayor, I think, was a no vote. Then you get into, what about Justice Thomas? He kind of gave comments both ways. That, that, that's not a 9-0 decision if we go at what amateurism, what, what we think it means. I mean, most people aren't talking about it as education-related expenses. That's a phrase that has sort of entered the fray 
in recent years. It's not one that was on our minds for a long time. So it's not the death of, of amateurism because that's not what the case was about. And I also, again, think some of those justices would have not voted the same way if it was a broader case. That's, that's my, I can't, I can't prove that, but I'm guessing it wasn't certainly not nine Oh, it may have been five, four, and I don't know which way it goes. Well, and the other thing is the Supreme court took this case up. We know like a very, what is it? Like 1% of the cases that, that the people asked them to, to, um, take on, they, they take on. Um, so it could be that the next big, correct. It could be that the next, you know, Jeffrey Kessler, whoever decides to round up some athletes and, and, and go, go nuclear, right. That, that the NCA restricting the NCA preventing its schools from, from flat out paying its players is, is, should be declared illegal. There's no guarantee that would make it all the way up to the Supreme court for one thing. Um, but let's say it does, uh, this is this is what I was curious about. So, in, in in neither the O'Bannon or this case did a court require because like they did they can't require the schools to give them it. All they did was say it's a it's a legal to prevent them from doing so. So, is there even a scenario where a case would go to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court and the result would be that these schools had to pay start paying their players? No, not under antitrust law which is how these cases have been litigated. Under antitrust law, it's about restraint and specifically a restraint when there are competing businesses. So here it's the competing schools and competing conferences working through the NCAA to limit what each can do. So none of these cases would lead to colleges that might not have the bandwidth or desire to pay having to pay. Um, so, so with that in mind, um, Look, the, the, the NCAA has spent a decade on this one legal defense, which was amateurism must be preserved at all costs, right? And, and, it, and, they, and it failed spectacularly. <laughs> I mean, Donald Remy was the chief legal officer during a lot of that time. He just left, like, right before this decision came down for the Biden administration. I think we can agree he was not the, the, the world's greatest defender. Of, of So anyway, my point is, if you're the NCAA... And you know, I mean, Mark Emmerich put out a memo to the to the schools that basically said, like, we should expect more litigation over pay for play. You got to change your strategy. Um, is it time for them to stop playing defense and to actually, you know, it's taken this long to try to, and they actually technically still haven't addressed NIL. Supposedly they will in the next week. Should the next step be, let's acknowledge reality. This is coming. Let's figure out a system to allow... I'm not saying that they'd be salaried employees or anything like that. Just something where schools can compete for recruits and can offer more than a scholarship, and it wouldn't and it would no longer be considered an antitrust violation. That we need to proactively come up with that. Yeah, I mean, if in a world where the three of us are calling the shots, I think that that makes a lot of sense. But in a world where they've had these entrenched views for a long time. Those are radical ideas. And, and Donald Remy, you're right. I mean, it, to the extent he's responsible for that strategy, it did not, the strategy did not work. I would, I would suspect he's one voice of many in that room. And I think the, the, the crucial error by the NCAA was in going to what you just said, was not being reasonable about fairly modest changes, whether it's NIL, 
whether it's group licensing, whether it's allowing athletes a little bit more money, because the problem is that it gets to courts and they look at this and think it's ridiculous, right? We saw that, that tone during the oral argument in March and it comes through in Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh's opinions. A more reasonable system, I think would elicit a very different outcome, which, and I think some of the justices wanted that. I really think Breyer, uh, and, and maybe Chief Justice Roberts, maybe Justice Barrett as well, right? I mean, there, there are a lot of folks there that might be inclined to say some moderate changes would make a big difference. And, and not only that, by doing this fight over what I think many would say are unreasonable propositions, it encourages members of Congress and state legislators to, to weigh in, right? With receptive audiences. I mean, if you're a state rep and you go after the NCAA, that can't hurt your voting, uh, you know, your likelihood of being reelected or things like that. And we've seen pretty dramatic, major disruptive ideas. I don't mean disruptive in a negative way. I just mean it would just disrupt things offered by members of Congress and, and those in state houses across the country. I don't think those things happen if the NCAA had been more reasonable. You, you sort of invite this by, by anchoring to a position. So to answer your question, yeah, I mean, maybe more reasonable changes would help, but that's not been their MO. Maybe with NIL, if it turns out, I know the latest development, these things seem to change by the day, is that, that schools will have discretion on setting NIL rules. That's pretty permissive. If, that, if, if that's their attitude going forward, that, that might help, although it also invites the question of, you know, why is there an NCAA if they're just going to let schools do their own thing, right? They've given up. They've thrown in the towel. We can't, yeah. we can't agree on anything, so you guys figure it out. And, and, you know, and, and Mark Emmert would say, well, we're a bureaucracy, essentially. I don't, I don't make any decisions. We're a member organization. I mean, I get that. But at some point, look, the O'Bannon case was brought 12 years ago, and they've been fighting the same fight since then. At some point, you got to sort of get your membership in order and say, let's do some reasonable things because this looks really bad. Because there's no, there's no like constituency that's defending this. I mean, even administrators at colleges are critical of it, right? That's a group you would think would be sort of supportive, but they're not. It's true. I, 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 when I was at the CFP meetings this week, Jack Swarbrick, the Notre Dame AD, we asked him flat out about what he thought about the decision. He said, I thought the tone was deserved. I thought some of those, that language was deserved. You know, he, now he's sitting at a school that makes God knows how much money. He's in a lot different position than his counterpart at, you know, uh, Wagner or Stony Brook or something like that. But anyway, that, that's a whole other topic for a whole other time. Mike, we really appreciate you coming on and, and educating us about the impact of the Supreme Court decision. Again, Sportico is the site he writes for if you're interested in. It's not just college sports, all sports, the business of sports. It's a great site. Go check it out. Thanks, Mike. Hey, thanks, too. Thanks, Bruce. Talk to you guys soon. Thanks for having me on. All right, before we go, Bruce, we're, we're not going to have a podcast next week. I'm going to be somewhere in paradise. Um, it's 4th of July coming up. However, you will be at Elite 11 in Southern California, um, where all of the top quarterback recruits in the country come. Give us a little bit of a preview of what to know about that. Yeah, this is going to be a little different than in past years, just in that I feel like they have more uncommitted uh, top quarterbacks who are going to be there than normally. Usually there would only be like one kid 
who was still uncommitted. And now I think there's maybe four or five who fit in that category. Um, so that'll be that'll be very interesting to see. I think this is considered a very good group of quarterbacks. It's a really good group, especially in the state of Texas. Quinn Ewers, who a lot of, I think, are, the Athletic has written quite a bit about. He was once committed to Texas and is now committed to Ohio State. A lot of people feel like he's the top guy. Uh, then there's another quarterback in Texas, Connor Wegman, who people really like as well. He's committed to Texas A&M, great baseball player. Uh, so we'll see that. And then you have some other players who it's going to be, for me, it's really interesting. There's a kid, Tevin Carter, who's out of the Memphis area. He didn't even have a season last year. Really, really gifted. There's a lot of buzz about Tevin Carter and how good he can be. And he's one who is uncommitted. So I think this is an opportunity for a couple of the uncommitted kids who, again, because of the pandemic, because either they didn't get a full season or they didn't get any season, or just because the chance that a lot of people did not get a chance to see them in person, um, I think the buzz will probably build a lot about their evaluations coming out of it. So I'm uh, I'm excited to see this in person uh, starting on Wednesday. Can you just give us a 60-second version of what happens at Elite 11? You know, we hear about it all the time. What goes on there? So really, since Trent Dilfer took it over uh, about a a decade ago, what they've become a lot more uh, involved in just what they throw at the quarterbacks. Before it was... It, I'm not saying it wasn't a good it wasn't a good uh, setup before, but I think it's a lot of on-field stuff. It's also a lot of in the classroom stuff, and I think they've done a good job at incorporating a lot of other things that go into quarterback development and beyond just how you throw a football. And so those things come into play. You'll also have a handful of the best college quarterbacks will be there as counselors. I know Sam Howell is expected to be out here. Uh, Malik Willis from Liberty, Spencer Rattler, uh, DTR from UCLA. So I know those guys, I think, are expected to be out there um, as well, throwing with them. And so it's just a really good chance to see all these guys competing side by side. And there's 20 of them. So uh, it's a lot of times you you can be... I remember seeing Sam Howell as a high schooler out here in California um, at the Elite 11, it was like there was some Baker Mayfield in him. I mean, he actually looked a little like Baker too, but I mean, you could see some of these things and go, yeah, I remember that. I remember Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields in the same class, and they were in a group of, you know, it was a big, physically big quarterback group, and it was obviously a really gifted one, and guys like that really, really um, lived up to the hype. Well, I'll be interested. I think, you know, as you described that, I think I'll be interested to hear what you or to, to for you to tell us what you notice about the current college quarterbacks there as much as the recruits. But uh, we'll have to revisit that at another time. So um, no audible next week. Um, Andy Staples does about 15 episodes a week of his show. So if you need podcast fix while, while we're gone, feel free to check that out. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Mm-hmm.